Morning, everyone. I hope you had a great Christmas celebration. And as we continue to have it, uh, it's not just a one-day event. Um, uh, we're glad you're here and uh, glad to share together. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 32 um, this morning, and we'll discuss some things there. Um, I don't know, maybe you're familiar with some of the older writers and uh, some of the older movies. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe had a story some time ago called The Telltale Heart. And the main character in that particular writing, uh, had committed murder. And he was unable to escape the haunting guilt of his deed. And, and he begins to hear the heartbeat of the victim he buried in the basement. And as the story goes on, his cold sweat begins to cover him as he hears the doom, 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 doom. The beat, beat, beat just continually, rhythmically pounds in his head. It's relentless. And ultimately, though, it becomes clear that the pounding which drove the man mad was not in the basement, but was in his own chest. And it seems so it is with an unforgiven conscience. The conscience certainly is invisible, but it certainly is not inactive. And probably all of us have been kept awake by its pleadings. An un- unforgiven conscience can rob us of so much. It can rob us, uh, actually, of our appetite. Uh, as well as drive us to great distraction. The ancient songwriter David, who wrote Psalm 32, he was no stranger to the relentless pounding of an unforgiven conscience. And as we read in Psalm 32, we're going to discover that David had become increasingly more physically, certainly spiritually, but emotionally ill the longer he refused to come to terms with the enormity of the grinding of his sin, the grinding guilt. And the only thing that can take away guilt is forgiveness. Only forgiveness can take away the pounding of the guilt. I've talked with a lot of people over the years and certainly know from my own experience that guilt is one of those things that's hard to run from. As a matter of fact, you can't. It is there rhythmically pounding away, always assaulting us. And if that's not bad enough, we have an enemy who's really quick to uh, accuse us and remind us of our sin. And so all of us face this thing called guilt, the guilt of our sin. Now a couple of things you need to notice about Psalm 32 is, first of all, it's a psalm of David. It's a song of a man that the Holy Spirit led to write. And so we need to consider the song that he writes is somehow descriptive of David's personal experience. It's also called a maskil, which is, refers to that which is contemplative, it's reflective, it's like a poem. It's a poem that we are to reflect upon which gives us great insight. And so if we put this together, Psalm 32 is designed to lead us to reflection, so you and I might gain insight when dealing with certain circumstances and situations in our life. And the situation in David's case is significant. The turmoil that he experienced that accompanies a lack of forgiveness. Psalm 51, you might want to note, should be tied to Psalm 32. Both were written after David's sin with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And his attempt to cover up the sin by having her husband Uriah murdered. And all this 
We read Psalm 51 was written actually during the anguishes of his guilt. It's honest. Maybe we can relate to it. Uh, But David suffered greatly under guilt because of that. But Psalm 32 is written after this anguish, but still has has a tie to those events. It's after his forgiveness had been secured. And that's kind of important as we read about it. It's after his mind has been restored. And the theme, it's not hard to pick up as we read it, is the blessedness of forgiveness. And this is relevant, again, as we read it, because there's many of you even here right now wrestling with guilt. You're under deep guilt, desperately need assurance, desperately need forgiveness. So in light of that background... Let's read Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever Heat of summer. Acknowledged my, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or as a mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones. David, in the first couple of verses, expresses this joy, this present joy he has. In these two verses, David's overjoyed. Because again, remember, he's looking back now on the sin and on the forgiveness he experienced. Now, blessed, he uses the word twice, and it has this idea of a multiplied and numberless blessings. It's rejoicing over the removal of sins. Now, if you look in the verses, he uses four words, you could say, to define sin, to refer to sin. The first one is transgression. That's the first term for wrongdoing. And these, these terms describe this like downward spiral of wrongdoing. The first one, transgression, it means to rebel, it means to revolt, it means to go where you should not go. That's why people put up no trespassing signs. You should not go there. I know growing up, um, we had a neighbor that she got so tired of us kids running in her backyard, she actually put a fence up. Think that stopped me? No, no, no. Matter of fact, it made it funner to trespass. Now I got to jump over a fence. And, and, uh, but she didn't want us there, and she made it very clear that uh, you're trespassing. You're, you're in a place you should not be. And that's what transgression is. You're going places that God doesn't want you to go. Transgression. There's another term he uses, it's just sin. It means to miss a mark, to deviate from the path which pleases God. He uses another word, iniquity. It's not a word we use a lot. 
But it goes deeply. It's, it's a deep word. It goes deep into our experience after sin has occurred. It actually has this idea of guilt, punishment, punishment of iniquity. And so David's feeling a lot of different things here as he uses these terms. They're not accidental. He uses them. And then he uses the word deceit, treachery, deception, self-deception. It's the idea of performing behind a mask. And who of us hasn't done that? Put the mask on that we're probably a little bit more righteous than what's going on on the inside. Put the mask on that spiritually we got this thing all figured out. We got it all together, but on the inside we're a mess. That's deceit. We've all done that. We've all faced that. And so David begins to trace this downward spiral of wrongdoing. And again, we're familiar with this tailspin. First, we rebel against God's revealed will. Next, we miss the mark. We, we miss his path of righteousness. And then third, we're not surprising that guilt grabs us. We go through the inner torment of severe, uncomfortable feelings without relief. And without relief, an unforgiven conscience can drive a person mad. I found this very interesting. I read about a London psychiatrist, and in his opinion, his experience, he believes over 70% of those in mental institutions could be released immediately if they could find forgiveness. Think about that for a minute. What if he's only half right? 35% could be released immediately from their tormenting guilt if they could just find forgiveness. And I think that leads us to this whole idea, and it's true that there is a prison all its own when we wrestle with guilt. It's hard to move behind, beyond And because it happens, it seems so slowly at times, we try to tolerate sin's consequences. But then there's those inner churnings and this grinding turmoil that begins to happen in our lives. And David's expression of joy is only there because of God's deliverance. It's only there because of God's forgiveness. If you fall into the torments of a guilty conscience through sin and you realize that self-deception is beginning to take over, I urge you to stop. Stop the downward spiral, this downward plunge, and confess to the Lord you're wrong. Go, over, go to whatever lengths is necessary to clean it up. Proverbs 28.13 is wise counsel. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Don't think you can escape. You won't experience blessing unless you repent and come back to God. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is so significant. If we confess our sins, if he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if, but if we don't confess our sins, guilt awaits you. And at relentless pounding, Of a guilty conscience. In verse 3 through 5, David begins to reflect upon his past sins. And he takes us back to those tragic days when he refused to acknowledge his sin, his wrongdoing. Now, these are seemingly amazing lyrics in this poem because he's describing what went on inside him. He's very reflective in that way. Here's what was going on inside me, he's saying. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
we're lend insight. We kind of get a peek into what's going on into David's heart and mind because we can relate to it. And so as he notice what he admits. Verse 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sins. So there's a point in there where David said he stuffed it all down. He wouldn't confess it. He was being a hypocrite. But he said there were grave consequences when I did that. There's a heavy price. You could say what he experienced was psychosomatic illness. In other words, the presence of actual physical pain resulting from mental and emotional conflicts. Look at this. When I kept silent, my body wasted away. There was a physical consequence. Through my groaning all day long, it made him sick when he stuffed it down. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. There was a spiritual weightiness which he experienced that he couldn't escape. And so he's laying out the price he was paying because of his sin. This presence of actual physical pain resulted in great conflict. And in this case, his refusal to deal completely and honestly with sin, he says, my body was wasting away. He groaned all day long. He couldn't escape it. He endured this day and night. His vitality was drained away. And I was just reminded of the, when there's that pain and that pressure, this prison of an unforgiven conscience. It's, 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 it's lock, we get locked up. We can't run from it. And he hadn't forgotten the effects of sin, and we dare not either. There's a reason he recounted this, because he wanted us to realize that it's not going to get any better. Our sin and our persistence in our sin, the consequences of it aren't going to go away. We can celebrate a Christmas and maybe escape it for a few moments, but it's going to be there, and it's going to pound, and it's going to continue to lock us up. But it's interesting if you look at the end, as you read through it, and you look at the end of verse, of, end of verse 5 there. He said, or end of verse 4, I'm sorry. He says, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You see the word selah. That word's an important word. It means pause and stop and consider what I just said. I like that. Because we're tempted to go on to the next verse. But David's saying, Stop for a moment. I want you to think about what I just said. Lock into it. Reflect upon it. Don't run by it. And so we don't want to do that. So I want to just say to you, Selah, for a moment. Pause. Are you experiencing God's heavy hand in your life? Are you utterly miserable in your sinful state? God wants you to know the truth this morning. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. You're going to be like a tree trying to survive without refreshing rain. You've seen one of those. They dry up, they begin to crack, they begin to wither. It's a very unappealing tree. God wants you to know that's what's going to happen. And you might be harboring sin this morning. Nobody around you next to you knows. It could be worry, it could be bitterness, anger, Gossip, pride, drinking binges, maybe the drugs, the pornography. Maybe you're feeding an attraction to another person. Don't expect to enjoy freedom from guilt. There is none. 
child of God, there's no escaping it. You will have that guilty, unforgiven conscience, and it will hound you. And an unspoken thread throughout the Bible, that secret sin cannot coexist with inner peace. They can't coexist. Peace returns only when our sins are fully confessed and fully forsaken. And I certainly can't think of anything worse than that turmoil and unforgiven conscience. And you maybe know it too. You can't run from it. It's frustrating because part of us knows what the remedy is. But then there's that self-deception part of us that says, if I just run a little harder, and I involve myself with a little more activity, maybe, maybe I can get away from it. But we lose so much joy and so much peace. But like a cool cleansing shower on a hot day, on a sweaty day, God's forgiveness washed away not only the sins, but the tempting and tormenting guilt. And the Lord went far into David's depths. And he provided magnificent relief that only he can bring. It's called peace. And we see it in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave. Now notice this. Not just my sin. The guilt of my sin. And that's a different thing sometimes, isn't it? We like to claim the forgiveness of sins, but sometimes if it's not authentic, that guilt remains. It's kind of the flag that says maybe you should go back on your knees. The guilt of our sin. And David claimed that God forgave completely. Why? Because David confessed completely. And finally, David's confession is without restraint. As he pours out his sinful condition. Now don't, don't miss the progression. Significant. One, he covered, the cover-up ended. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. Remember how it began where, where he was silent about it and he began to waste away. So he suffed it, he was hiding it, but repentance is what really brought forgiveness. But the repentance that says, I'm busted. I sinned against you, God, and only you. If we were to study David's life and Saul's life, you remember Saul confessed his sin, but he just said, I sinned. David said, I sinned, but I sinned against heaven, God, and I sinned against you. There's a difference. It's acknowledging who you sinned against. David came clean. And that's the only way to find forgiveness, especially from a guilty conscience, is the cover-up needs to end. And then in the progression, a confession was made. And then three, there was a consciousness of forgiveness. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And that's what I'm praying happens this morning. But David's not done in this psalm. He goes to verses 6-8 through eight and talks about this provision of future needs. Now remember, the theme of this, for, of this psalm is forgiveness. In verse 6, David issues an invitation. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now David issues this invitation to all those who are godly, all those who believe, we, we would use. He urges all to pray, even in the midst, when the flood of great waters comes upon them. When all seems hopeless, we're invited to pray. And when this is done, David kind of lets us in on a secret. When this is done, that's when deliverance comes. David says, 
deliverance God brought was high above the floods, were able to persevere among troubles, and were happy. There's joy amid the conflict. In other words, there's completeness when God delivers. Verse 7, he talks about this full attentions on God. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. How did David know all this? He knew it by experience. It's doubtful he would have known this had God not walked him through all the things that he'd gone through. But David on the other side of this now is able to make this proclamation and this insight into who God is. That God is the one who protects. God's the one who persevered. God's the one who surrounded. God even gave him a song. When at one time there was no songs. There was just groanings. Now, he says after that again, Selah. Stop. Reflect on what he just said. Think about what he just said. And then he leads into verse 8 to an exhortation. It's an exhortation in response to what he just said to think about. So he says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And so in response to this, There's an invitation given to all God's people. In it, God promises His guidance and His counsel. And He reveals a whole new way of life. A promise of direction God gives. But it doesn't happen. You can't skip the first part of the psalm to get to this. God's not going to guide and direct you in any certain direction until you deal with the sin. And I I fear there's so many who pray for God's direction, who pray for God's will, and God says, time out. I'm not leading you anywhere until you deal with this sin. And you'd be wise, especially if you're in that place in your college age years and you're thinking, oh God, what do you got for the future for me? Where should I go? What should I do? And God says, you know what? Let's stop for a moment. Let's talk about this sin you're stuffing down. Selah, pause. Think about your life. And verse 8 literally concludes, I will give counsel keeping my eyes upon you. God says, I'm watching, I'm observing, I'm helping. I'm not here to be some uh, celestial ogre. But my eye's upon you. And I'm here to help you. And because my eye's upon you, I can direct you in paths. Paths of blessing. Paths will, which will accentuate and reinforce the forgiveness you're experiencing. But don't expect direction and blessing if you're walking in disobedience. Because God will continually bring you back to the sin in which you need to confess. There's some old hymns I love, and, and uh, one of them, uh, there's a line from it says, My guilt and despair Jesus took on him there because Calvary covers it all. I don't know if you're familiar with that hymn. That's a great hymn. Calvary covers it all. So true. It's a time for us to start believing what we sing. Because we really can't sing it in its totality of truth if we haven't come and really confessed our sin. In in Psalm 32 is one of those great psalms because verses 9 through 11 give us the actual applications of how to respond to this. And he says the first thing in verse 9, and these are strong exhortations, the first one's don't be stubborn. Look at verse 9. Do not be as a horse or as a mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle. Why do they need a bit and bridle? It's to hold them in check. Otherwise, they'll not come near to you. 
They're stubborn. Don't resist. And when it comes to dealing with sin especially, don't be like a mule. Don't be hard-headed, beast. Give in to God's voice. Give in to the wooing of the Spirit. Keep an open account before God. Don't let your guilt pile up. Let the guilt lead you to humbly falling before the Lord. Communion offers you an opportunity to do that. Verse 10 tells us to a second application. Make your choice. There's two options in verse 10. Two paths. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. There's one path. There's one choice. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Make your choice. The path of the wicked only is going to bring sorrow, but it is a choice. There is another choice. It's called a path of trust. It brings a great growing measure of God's love. Make your choice, but remember the outcome. You're going to go your own way, but God wants you to know that there are consequences. Or you can trust God. You can confess your sin and trust God's provision in Christ. But make your choice. Communion offers you an opportunity to make that choice. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. David ends the psalm by saying, when we come to him confess our sin, when we come and claim forgiveness of that sin and that guilt, we're upright in heart. We can now rejoice. But the third application is kind of my exhortation is remain upright. Continue to walk in righteousness. If you're looking for greener pastures, you'll find them only in fellowship with the Lord. Don't be a fool. Remain upright. Stop the downward plunge of sin and guilt. You see, God planned a life for His children that results in inner peace, outer strength, optimism, and vitality. But we're so sinful. We frequently choose to walk our own way. But I'm so grateful God in His grace is willing to forgive. He stays near us as we recover. He'll restore us. And He forgives us if we'll completely repent. I'm convinced those who understand sin understand repentance. Those who understand repentance understand forgiveness. Those who understand forgiveness understand peace. But it all starts with recognizing, confessing our sin. That's what the Bible calls repentance. I remember some years ago I spoke at a prison. There's a large prison population that came to this chapel. And uh, it was a unique setting. You don't get to do that every day. Walk through the barbed wire and all them gates and everything. And you hear them clang behind you. And and you're like, man, what, what a horrible life this would be in a prison. To hear that all day. Clang. And look around and all you see is a reminder of your sin. A visual reminder. Everywhere you turn. Of your mistakes. And so I stood before these guys and I knew that. And I knew that these guys had to have been dealing with guilt. Little did I know how deep it would be. I shared with them about forgiveness. And we moved to communion. I just thought it would be the right thing to do. And I can't tell you the amount of tears that were shed as these men came 
and laid before the foot of the cross their sin and their guilt. You should have heard them sing at the end of that service. I wish you could have heard it. It was like a whole different congregation came in. But a whole different congregation really sang. There was deliverance. There was, I think, maybe for the first time in some of their cases, a reality of that God truly forgave them. And although they were surrounded by a visual reminder of their prison, of their guilt, they had another visual reminder of the bread and the juice. A visual reminder of forgiveness. A visual reminder of deliverance. You see, communion is a selah. It's a time to pause. It's a time to reflect. It's a time for you and I to do that. And so we want to do that right now. And so I really want to encourage you this morning. I don't know where you're at. And maybe you're right now on a down, downward spiral. You're not here by accident this morning. We're going to come to the communion table. But before I do that, I want to, I want to say la. I want to pause. I want you to respond to God in your heart. It's just you and Him. Refuse to be silent about your sin any longer. Do what David did. and Confess it to God. Say it to Him. Confess it. Be, be clear. Don't water it down. Say, call it what it is. Before Him. And find true forgiveness. And you may not even be a Christian right now, and you're like, well, I don't even know I could even talk to God like that. You can. It's, it's how you come to salvation. Of confessing your sin before God, repenting it, confessing you need a Savior, and that without His saving you, you have no hope, you have no forgiveness, you have no eternal life. For salvation is only found in Jesus Christ, and you can do that right in your seat. And for you who are Christians already, the, the exhortation doesn't change. Confess your sin to God. And so I want to allow you some time to pause, some time to reflect, and reflect not on your prison of guilt, not on the, the prison of sin but to confess it and focus on different visual. The bread, the juice, the sacrifice of Christ, which has made forgiveness and deliverance possible. Let me allow you some time. And in the quiet, I'll have some gentlemen come up who will help pass out the elements. We'll pass out the bread. If you're a Christian and um, you've confessed your sin and uh, you're, you've repented of it and you're not living in a life of disobedience, but you're confessing it, Boy, you're welcome to the communion table. God says it's the right time, it's the right place. If you're not a Christian or if you're not willing to repent, then you have no business taking communion. Um, you should pass on it until you are ready to do that. And so let me allow you some time, and I'll have some gentlemen come forward who help serve communion.
our Savior took the bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Savior took the cup and he said, This cup is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Our Lord, 
How sweet is that word forgiveness? How sweet is the word deliverance? We thank you for the visual reminders this morning of the price you paid so we could have forgiveness from sin, from guilt, despair. We thank you for peace and joy that you give. We rejoice in the truth that Calvary does cover it all. Our sin, our guilt, the price you paid, you paid once for all. We rejoice in that this day. Might your love, might your grace compel us to live for you. Might that same love and grace might your spirit cause it to flow in and through our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray.